I want to invite you all now to open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 40, or Psalm 40 as we could call it. And I'll encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, with you throughout this morning's uh, message. So again, that's Psalm 40. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And as we're turning there, let me just reiterate what a privilege it is to be here, especially on the first Sunday of the new year. Uh, what a year you guys have had. Just seeing those pictures and reflecting back upon, upon 2021 and the changes that have taken place here, uh, it's really encouraging. And just know, again, that Ammon Valley is rooting all of you on. But anyways, as we open up our words this morning, up our Bibles this morning, we're going to be reflecting on the sort of things that each year uh, naturally causes us to think about. Each new year, we, ca- we are caused to think about the past and about the future. And so we're going to be looking at that. Uh, this is how we are oriented as humans by time. We are creatures living in time and space. And so we are the kind of beings that look back and look ahead. We do not, like God, have a providential overview of the timeline. We do not know what is coming, but we very much exist in time. And so this is okay. This is the way God has created us. But it definitely means that there are certain difficulties that we come across in life when there are unknowns, when there is pain that we're suffering through. And so in this morning's psalm, we're going to be learning how to deal with those seasons of waiting, learning how to deal with the seasons of the unknown. And so before we read, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, as we come before you, we ask that you would shine your light from your word into our dark minds. We recognize that we do not live, Father, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We are totally incapable, uh, without your guidance, of living well in this world. And so as we read this morning, we ask that by the Spirit you would shine your light. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Psalm 40, verses 1 through 4. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is by no means a brilliant observation to suggest that the world in which we live today is a very fast world. Things are quickly paced. It's just pretty obvious to notice this, compared especially to human history, to the slowness of human history, we live in a relatively efficient world. A relatively uh, efficient world where things take place very, very quickly. Uh, We know this. This is obvious to us. Never before in human history could we do things like fly around the world in less than 24 hours. Uh, We can communicate virtually with anyone in mere seconds just by punching in a few numbers on our cell phone from 
basically anywhere on the globe, and we can talk to anyone anywhere else. And we can now even microwave our dinners in more or less than five minutes. We live in a quick world. And so in such a quick world, we come to a place where we expect efficiency. We expect things to happen rapidly. These are no longer privileges to be expected or to be hoped for, but they are expectations that we have for reality. And if you want proof of this, just think back to the last time that your smartphone glitched out on you. For those of you who have smartphones, uh, just think about how thrown off you were when your phone stopped working correctly. Often my old iPhone, uh, iPhone 7 came out four or so years ago, maybe five years ago now. Uh, When I'm on GPS, on maps, driving somewhere, it will often glitch and freeze on me, which is a pretty alarming thing. And those are the most frustrating moments for my phone. I want my phone to work perfectly every time. And so this is a a big conundrum that we find ourselves in. We want things to be snappy and painless. We want things to be quick and to work well. The only problem, though, as I'm sure we're all aware, is that reality has a way of reminding us that things do not always go according to our plans, right? We bump into the, the brick wall from time to time of realization that, I don't get to determine how things go in my life all the time. We are lulled into thinking that things will go according to our plans, only to find out often that they're not going to. And so as we see in our passage this morning, the Bible teaches us that sometimes the only thing we can do in seasons like this is to wait. It's to humble ourselves and to wait for the Lord. But it's one thing to wait for your iPhone to unfreeze while you're driving, and it's another thing to wait for the Lord in times where it's really necessary and where it's really dark and where it's really painful, when you don't know what the future holds, when you don't know what the diagnosis will be, when you don't know if your child will turn their life around. That is a different kind of waiting altogether. And so, as we focus in on the words of David this morning, perhaps it is good to mention right from the beginning that we don't know exactly the the context of this psalm. We don't know exactly when or why David wrote this psalm. When he speaks of waiting, we're not sure exactly what he is speaking of. Perhaps a good guess would be that this psalm was written maybe at his coronation, After the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan, David comes to to be the king of Israel. But we really don't know for sure. This this sort of makes this psalm available to us to to think about how the different seasons of our life, uh, we, we find ourselves waiting as well. What we do know about this psalm, however, is that especially given the bright and exuberant joy of the psalm, is that it was written in conclusion, or at the conclusion of a very difficult season in David's life. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So this is a joyous celebration from David. Perhaps the only thing missing in our NIV translation here, as you can see on the screen, is exclamation points. David is excited. He is exuberant. You could say he's pumped up about the Lord's action on his behalf. 
And the reason he was so excited is that David was no stranger to waiting. If anybody knew what it meant to wait, it was David. In fact, in the three Psalms leading up to Psalm chapter 40, in Psalm 38, or Psalm 37, 38, and 39, David goes into what it looks like to wait. And in fact, we see him waiting himself. So in Psalm 37, we see him say this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. And so David here is expounding the meaning of waiting. And he is commending it. He is encouraging his people to wait. And so we see David taking a little bit of his own medicine now in Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, where we can see, just for example, he says this, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. But for you, Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And also in Psalm 39, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. And so here in these Psalms, we see David having to wait himself. He is crying out to the Lord. Lord, come to my aid. Come to my help. And so this leads us to our passage this morning in Psalm 40. And as the great Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner once said in his commentary on the Psalms, he put it this way, the theme of waiting expounded in Psalm 37 has had its painful application in Psalms 38 and 39. But now in Psalm 40, it's triumphant outcome. And so we see David waiting, him going through those seasons of doubt, those seasons of pain. And now in Psalm 40, we see the conclusion. And so as we turn now to our text, I want to reflect on some of the important observations, some of the the important lessons we can pull from this text this morning. And we'll start with this. In the opening verse, we're confronted with our theme, which is patient waiting. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And this implies, again, that David recognizes his creatureliness before the Creator, before the one who is both above and outside of time, the one who providentially, as we're told in the book of Ephesians, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The Lord works out everything in perfect conformity to his will. And so perhaps the first lesson that we might gather from these inspired words is that in the dark seasons of life, we must learn to humble ourselves and commit to the Lord's itinerary. Not to our own timeline, but to what the Lord is doing. To trust Him. And let's be honest, this is really hard, isn't it? This is one of the difficulties of being a human being. And so we feel as though we are wanting to be in complete control of our lives. But again, we we can't be. And so this is especially true in our present cultural moment. We believe, as we are, 
not only the ones who get to dictate the timeline of our lives, but we get to dictate the outcome of our lives. As the great poet William Ernest Henley once put it, and you will know these words, we think that we are the masters of our fates and the captains of our souls. And so the whole concept of waiting on God, waiting on another being, is quite foreign to us. And it doesn't just seem hard, it doesn't just seem difficult, but it seems foolish. It seems like a waste of our time. But there's good news here, isn't there? There's good news in this passage. As David is quick to explain, as he writes in the second line, the Lord turns to his people and he hears their cries. The Lord turns to his peoples and he hears their cries. And so while it is often difficult for us to wait patiently on the Lord for the resolution of a great unknown in our life, we are called to do so knowing that we are not alone, but that the Lord of the universe hears us, little old us, and hears our cries and acts on our behalf. So all those prayers of pain and suffering and heartache prayed in the dark seasons heard. All of the nights spent in anxiety where you are crying yourself to sleep, seen. That is the great promise of the Lord. All the sin confessed in faith, forgiven. These are the great gospel truths that we see in this passage. The Lord turns to his people and he hears their cry. And so the great hope then is that we have a Lord who intervenes. The Lord does not just be removed. He does not just sit removed from us and be uncaring towards us. He is not indifferent towards the yearnings of his people, but he listens to those who cry out to him in faith. And so this leads us to our second lesson in this passage, that God has a shepherd's heart. That The Lord has a shepherd's heart. And this is why we can wait patiently. David says in verse 2, If you still have your Bibles open. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This imagery, of course, implies a sort of shepherding imagery. It's the relationship of our Lord to us, which we know quite well. Psalm 23 is a great example of this. And just as sheep are prone to wandering and getting stuck, so we get stuck in dark moments of our lives. And so David takes note of God's gracious actions to him. As his shepherd, God does two things. God pulls him from the muck and the mire, and he sets him on a rock to stand. And so this is what the Lord does for us. He has a tender tender heart towards his sheep. It's very easy for us to have misinformed notions and conceptions of God. It's very easy for us to think that the Lord has turned from us, that the Lord despises us, that the Lord no longer cares for us. And so we will find ourselves praying often, like David himself, how long, O Lord, will you turn to me? And sometimes we think that the Lord would would just turn to us and say, you've made your bed, now lie in it. And that is how it feels. And so we dare not miss David's point here. God listens to his people. And he rescues them in due time. He is not unconcerned with their plight. He is not indifferent to our pain. No, our God descends. Our God steps down into the muck and the mire and pulls us out from it and raises us up to new life. And so the third lesson, and we're just moving along. We can just clip along here. Psalm 
40, verse 3, we can see that the only natural response to God's action on our behalf after a long season of waiting is praise, worship, and singing. David says in verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so when the Lord intervenes on behalf of his people, the only natural response that we have is to praise him, is to sing, is to worship. And this is why in the Reformed tradition, even as we've done this morning, we often begin our worship services with a call to worship, which is where a theme of God's grace is highlighted for us. And this is, this is different from many, many churches where you come into worship and it's just happy, clappy songs to start out. Often what we need is a reason to praise God. We need to be reminded of God's grace for us, that worship starts with grace, with God's grace calling us in and blessing us, and that is what causes his people to worship. And we see this, for example, in Psalm 100, where in the final two verses it reads, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is one of the classic calls to worship uh, in the Christian tradition. And you can see why. The Lord is good and his love endures. That is a reason to worship. The same logic is a part of the backbone of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is built on the threefold structure of guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? Guilt. We start with our guilt, which is our misery before the Lord. We learn of his grace in the gospel of Christ. And we live our lives in obedience and worship, which is our way of showing our gratitude to the Lord. And so that's exactly what is going on here. But it's also interesting to note, as we reflect on verse 3 of this psalm, the fact that David connects praise with evangelism, as if they are the same exact thing. So in the second line of verse 3, he says, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so the idea here is that the lives of God's people will be so marked by praise and worship and joy that others will take notice. They will hear of the good things of the Lord and they will turn to Him. They will be blown away by what they're hearing about God. And so... In his little book on the Psalms, it's called the Reflections on the Psalms by C.S. Lewis, he spends a whole chapter reflecting on the meaning of praise. And for Lewis, one of the difficulties of praise is that the Psalms often will call people to praise the Lord, just as we saw in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise. And C.S. Lewis struggles with this, he admits. He said, when I first became a Christian, I really thought this was a bit strange, that the Lord commands us to worship him. Isn't that a little bit conceited or a little bit uh, just, he's sort of full of himself. And so he's working through how he came to the conclusion of wrestling with this question. And he, he begins to learn what true praise is all about. And so in one of the more famous passages of the book, this is what he writes. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. 
to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. The Scotch, or that is the Westminster Catechism, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. And so this is exactly what David is doing, isn't he? He is publicly enjoying and praising the Lord. Enjoying God's benefits. Enjoying the the blessings of the Lord. And he's making this known to the world around him. He is singing a new song of praise. And interestingly, this also happens to be the truest form of evangelism. When we publicly enjoy and worship the Lord, we are at the same time bearing witness to him. And the reverse also ought to be true as well. When we are bearing witness to him publicly, maybe in a more unique evangelistic way, when we are doing this, it ought to be motivated by a pure love for the Lord, an enjoyment for the Lord, and a desire for others to share in that enjoyment. In much the same way that we love to share a delicious recipe or we love to share a new movie that we watched that we really enjoyed. We like to tell people about these things. I can remember in high school, one of my favorite hobbies was collecting music. I collected lots and lots of CDs of my favorite bands. And one of my favorite things to do was to just tell my friends about these, these bands, these artists that I was listening to. I wasn't compelled by any sort of obligation. Oh, I must go and tell them about these bands I listened to. I wanted them to share in my joy. I wanted them to share in my enjoyment. And so evangelism is not because God just needs people to go out and make him sound relevant or make him sound cool. The church's calling is simply to praise the Lord and to make known his mighty deeds to those around them, to tell others and proclaim to others the gospel of God's grace, to enjoy him, to love him, to consider always his faithfulness and compassion to us, That is our job, and to tell others of his beauty and his magnificence. And so therefore, if we notice a decline in evangelism happening, we might then say that there's a decline in God's people for the love of God. That there is a proportional decline in our hearts for God's glory, for God's beauty. And so the cure for our evangelistic malaise isn't so much to try harder and to do better and to go and learn techniques of how to share with people. The real trick is to learn to love the Lord. Reflect on his goodness to you. Reflect on all that he has done in your life for your salvation and for your joy. And then, fueled by that, to turn to others in praise of him. And this takes us finally to our fourth lesson, which we might call the fuel of patience. What drives our patience? And that is trust. David has just told us that upon the hearing of God's people praising his name, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so now in verse 4, he goes on to pronounce a blessing for those who do just that. He says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. And so with this, David is explaining 
how exactly waiting patiently on the Lord is even possible at all. The only way we can wait patiently on God is to trust him. That's quite obvious, I think. Those who do not wait patiently on the Lord then make it clear that they do not trust him. The same is true for our human relationships as well, isn't it? If you can remember a time, or maybe you are even now a parent of young children, imagine you have a 13-year-old child, and your 13-year-old child usually comes home from school at a certain time every day. But one day, the minutes are ticking by. The child is not home. What sort of feeling do you have welling up within you? Probably one of a little bit of anxiety. What's going on? Are they having trouble getting home? Did somebody stop them? Or maybe are they, are they disobeying? Are they trying to sneak one past me? Are they trying to go hang out with their friends after school? And so in such a certain situation like this, you would recognize that the, the issue lacking in the parent's heart is trust. There is, a, there is a lack of trust. And maybe there's good reason for this lack of trust. But waiting patiently is difficult if there is no trust. Whereas you could think about the same spouse or the same parent. Think about their spouse being late from work. So if their kid is late from school, they may feel, feel a little bit of, of, of unease. But if their spouse is running late from work, and given that this, we'll say the relationship is a strong relationship built over many years there may not be that same sense of anxiety welling up. Maybe there is a sense of, oh, I hope nothing happened to them, but there wouldn't be any fear that their spouse is going and doing anything that they shouldn't be doing. And so this idea of trust, this trust fuels our patient waiting on the Lord. When we trust him, when we have seen his mighty deeds in our lives, we can trust. We can sit patiently with the Lord. We can allow him to work according to his timeline and not according to to ours. And so, if we know him and if we've been careful to observe and to celebrate all that he's done, then we will have this trust building inside of us, like the wife who is waiting patiently for her husband to return home from work. And so now that we've worked through these different lessons from the text, I think we would do well to reflect for just a minute on the gospel implications of this passage and how it both teaches us about Jesus' own life and ministry and exactly what he has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. In fact, if we fail to remember that the Psalter is ultimately a collection of our Savior's prayers, we will fail to understand their true meaning. And a great example of this actually is found from today's passage, verses 6 and 7. It's actually found in Hebrews chapter 10, and it's directly applied or attributed to the words of Christ. And so following the lead of the author of Hebrews, I think it's important for us to understand this prayer, not only as a prayer of King David, but a prayer of the second David, the better David, who is King Jesus. And when we do this, I think new vistas of meaning open up to us, that we can behold new ideas that we wouldn't have been able to if we were merely grounded in David's context. And so to understand what I'm getting at, I'm going to reread for you the first two lines of this psalm. And as I do, I want you to just to think about Jesus saying these words and think about what that implies for the meaning of this psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. 
He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And so I think if we're thinking through the stories of the Gospels as we read this, it's not hard to understand the words, these words as our Savior's words of celebration for his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Just as David was lifted out of the muck and mire of his despair, so too the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the muck and from the mire of death. As David's feet were set upon a rock, so too were the Lord Jesus' feet resurrected from the grave. He stood on the ground once more and did not lay in the tomb. And so when we read this psalm, we ought to be mindful of these gospel implications and what it's teaching us about Jesus himself. But because Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, we know that those who are in Christ have themselves been crucified with him. That is the, the identity of every Christian ever. You are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but it is Christ who lives in you. So therefore, you are dead to sin. That is no longer who you are anymore. And by faith, you have been raised with him to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in this sense, this prayer in Psalm 40 isn't just David's prayer or even just Jesus' prayer, but it's our prayer as well. This is a prayer Christians get to pray in thanking God for their salvation. In Christ, we are lifted up by God out of the slimy pit of death and are set upon the rock who is Christ. And by our reliance on him, we are given a firm place to stand. This, brothers and sisters, is the great joy of the gospel. We waited and God heard us. We cried and God acted. We were sunk deep in sin and misery, but God has lifted us up. We were covered in sin's guilt, and yet he has clothed us with his son. And so, as I begin to wrap things up just a little bit, I want to do so by asking a question then. Looking back on this psalm, how does all of this shape how we wait? How does the good news of Jesus Christ impact the way and the, the way we wait on the Lord in seasons of great uncertainty or sorrow or suffering. Because let's be honest, we're all destined to have such seasons. Many of us have been through them. We've been through these seasons of waiting on the Lord, where the pain seems too heavy to bear, where the stress is sort of eating, up, eating us alive from the inside, where the future before us is nothing but a dark cloud hanging out over the horizon, where all we can do is wait and pray. And so how does the gospel change how we do this? Or put differently, how does the gospel help us to do what David did in waiting patiently by faith? Well, the answer can actually be found in the psalm itself, in Psalm 40. Interestingly, as we've seen, this psalm starts off with a glorious praise of the Lord's deliverance. That's the, the verses that we read. But in the second half of the psalm, what we find is another set of petitions and requests. David goes from praising the Lord, and now he is laying more requests before the Lord. And so in verses 13 and 14, David says, Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. 
O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my my ruin be turned back in disgrace. And then in verse 17, the very last verse, he finishes, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. So he starts with this celebration and he ends almost right back where he has started in another difficult situation. And such is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. To be a disciple of Christ is to be, as the Apostle Paul put it, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The idea that I want us to see from Psalm 40 is that God's past deliverances are what builds David's trust and confidence going forward into the future. Because God has already shown himself himself faithful to David, David is now evermore assured of the Lord's love, his grace, his mercy, and his power for his future. And so here is how one pastor, Pastor John Piper, explains this concept. And I think it's Brilliantly put. He says, the infinite reservoir of future grace, so all the future grace God has for us, is flowing back through the present into the ever-growing pool of past grace. The inexhaustible reservoir is invisible, except through the promises that God gives us. But the ever-enlarging pool pool of past grace is visible. And God means for the certainty and beauty and depth to strengthen our faith in future grace. And so the concept Piper is getting at is that you can imagine an infinite reservoir ahead of us of God's grace to us. And God's grace is even now, in this very present moment, flowing into our lives. And we are, we are receiving God's blessings. We are breathing. We are here today with friends and with our family, worshiping the Lord. We got out of bed this morning. All these blessings are now pooling up in our past. More and more, this reservoir of God's past grace and mercy to us is growing bigger by the hour. And so we have more trust now that there is more where that came from. It may be hard to believe right now, but I know, you can say, I know that God will not come up short on his promises. The Lord will provide. He is faithful and I can rely on him. And so we can do this by reflecting on our own lives. We can count our many blessings that have happened in the past, for me, 31 years. Maybe for you it's longer or shorter. We can count the blessings of our lives and be reminded of God's long record of perfect goodness to us. But without a doubt, the greatest evidence of God's goodness to us is seen in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. If we ever doubt God's goodness and benevolence for us, we need to look nowhere else than to the face of our Lord. There may come a day when you question God's love for you. There may come a day where you wonder where God is in all of it. There may come a day where you will wonder if he has forgotten you and left you for dead. And in these moments, remember Christ. Remember him and in him rest assured of the Father's love for you. And in one of the most f- beloved passages of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul is going on about the goodness and glory of the gospel and of the assurance that we have in Jesus, he says these words in 
Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Notice here the glorious gospel truth. If the Father has already given us his infinitely valuable son, so that he might die and be raised for us, what else could we possibly worry about? He's not going to give us Christ and then withhold any other blessings that we need for life and godliness and joy. A helpful analogy for this might be if you gave your life savings to your child as they're trying to start a new business. And you can say it's a, it's a new restaurant. You give all of your life savings to invest in this new restaurant. And then your child comes to you and says, Hey, Dad, I need, I need you to just run a quick errand for me. We're out of a certain item at the restaurant. I need you to go pick it up. You would not then say, Nope, too bad. Do it on your own. You have given everything already to this child. You will do whatever it takes to see to, see to it that they succeed. It's the same for the Lord with us. He has given us his infinitely and supremely valuable son. What else could he possibly withhold? What other proof do we need, brothers and sisters, of the goodness of God on our behalf? He has given us righteousness, grace, in Christ. So let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge that you have given us all things in Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would cause our hearts to be mindful of all of your goodness, that we would often reflect back on the good things that you have done, especially in this new year. And may we look forward, Lord, then, with ever-increased hope and faith in you, knowing that you have given us all that we need, and that though our hearts and our flesh may fail, you are the portion of our hearts and our strength forever. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.